it was just such a privilege. And whenever I had the opportunity to come back, I'm, I mean, I immediately said, of course. You know, I'm just so glad to be here with you all. Yeah, me and Jared go way back. We went to the College of Biblical Studies together, and then we ended up in Louisville, Kentucky together. And so it's just it's crazy. I've, it seems like I've known him for quite a long time now, feeling old, actually. But um, I know Brian, too. Brian and uh, Lakeside, you know, Lakeside Bible Church and this church have a good relationship. We go to man camp together. Uh, we do youth camps and things like that together. And so uh, we're really like-minded. And so it's just it's really great to be here. So this morning, we're going to be looking at an event from the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. This is one of my very favorite stories from the Gospels. Um, it is... It is an event in the life of Peter. Um, I believe John MacArthur calls Peter the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's, uh, he's a big, burly fisherman. Um, if you think about Peter, I don't, I don't know the kind of the, the picture you get in your mind, but I always saw a really small, wizened, kind of old guy. But really, you need to get a picture in your mind of a big, burly fisherman because the type of fishing that they did, we'll see here in a minute, was was really hard work that only strong people could do. He probably had hands like shovels. He was a, he was a big, strong, burly guy. And uh, this event kind of puts that. I mean, just imagine this big, strong guy, and then imagine what happens here in this story. It's really amazing. And so this is one of my favorite stories. And um, let's start reading in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon is Peter, uh, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out of the deep and let's let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, uh, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but because you say so, I let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in another boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for this amazing event in the life of Peter that teaches us so much about ourselves and about you. And, and I pray that it would impact our hearts today and that we would be different because of what we have heard. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the day, you know that time back in the day, whenever that was, there used to be these little things called penny and slot mechanisms. And they were little machines. Maybe some of you have seen these in like antique stores or something like that. And you put a penny in a slot, you dropped a penny in, and the little machine did some kind of task. Like maybe it pretended to throw a football mechanically or, you know, a guy turned around and like, I don't know, watered some plants or whatever. 
Uh, he might sing, he might dance or do some kind of <clears throat> task, but they were notoriously glitchy. Oftentimes, you put in a penny and nothing happened. Or there was like this long delay, you threw in the penny and you sat there waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing happened, but then finally the penny drops and then the action takes place. And, and ever since then, that's become an expression in our language, the penny dropped, right? It's like, finally, the penny dropped. And then I understood it. And the, the penny dropped, that, that phrase, has become, has become a figure of speech that means a delayed realization after a period of confusion or ignorance. It, the expression, the penny dropped, means you don't quite get something. Like you're seeing things, but you're not totally understanding. You're not really getting the real truth. But then finally, the penny drops, and you finally get it. That's exactly what's going on in this story. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Right? Maybe it's like one of those M. Night Shyamalan movies where, you know, oh, he was dead the whole time, you know, and, you know, all of a sudden the penny drops and, like, you get it, you know. And, uh, well, that's, that's what's going on in this story here today, okay? It's a story that on the surface is about, you know, a miraculous catch of fish. It's a really cool miracle story. It's also about the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be full-time followers of Jesus. The story's about that. But really, it's about something much more significant. This is a story about Peter's conversion. Okay, I think we're going to see that this, this, is, this is probably the point in Peter's life where he comes to really realize who Jesus is for the first time. This is, this is the moment where the penny drops for Peter. This is nothing less than a total shift and understanding of everything that he's been seeing in this Jesus person, and it has an amazing effect on his life. What we see here is when it finally clicks for Peter. This, this is the moment where Peter goes from not really seeing to seeing clearly for the first time, from seeing events going on and drawing the wrong conclusions to complete realization of everything that's happening. And so I want us to look, just walk through the story together. I don't have a clever outline. I don't have three or four alliterated points in a poem or anything like that. I just want to walk through the story stage by stage and just see what it means for us, okay? And then we'll, we'll get to some application points and things like that. But the first thing I want us to do is look at the chapter before, okay? In, in Luke chapter 4, you can maybe turn back a page in your Bible, because to really understand this account, we have to see what happened before it, because it's really important. Now, what comes just before chapter 5 in Luke's gospel is uh, Luke chapter 4, and and what we see here, if you just look at the titles in your Bible, the titles are inspired, okay? They're not like part of the scriptures, but they help us kind of maybe get a summarization. But in chapter 4, at the beginning, we see the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God. He's driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he passes the test. He's tempted by Satan, okay, for 40 days. Like Israel was tested for 40 years. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. It's not a coincidence, okay? You're meant to be seeing like, whoa, Jesus passed the test that Adam failed in the garden, and that Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus passes the test. This is God's obedient son. This is God's true son in whom he is well pleased. And then the next thing you see that happens is Jesus goes and preaches in his home synagogue in Nazareth. And uh, he preaches this. It's actually, if you look at verses 18 and 19, this is the scripture he reads from. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the, liber uh, the, the, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a quotation from Isaiah. He rolls up the scroll and he says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
and uh, it's not really well received. He goes on to say a couple things in, his, uh, in the rest of his sermon that gets him chased out of town, and they try to throw him off a cliff. So hopefully that doesn't happen to me today. And uh, it's just it's not, a good, it's not a good reception. But what happens right after this, though, is he goes down to, uh, a tent, goes down to Capernaum, which is a city of Galilee. And what he does in Capernaum is proves that everything he said he came to do in his sermon is true. He's setting captives free. He's casting out demons. He's healing people of diseases. He's, he, those, that sermon wasn't just empty words. He really is the guy he said he was. And it, it's really great. He, uh, he casts out demons. He heals a woman with a fever. He heals a multitude of people all through the night. Everything that he said he was going to do, he's doing. And he's proving that he really is a man of authority. He really is the Lord's anointed. He really is all these things. But the most important thing we need to see for our purposes today is in verses 31 and following, all those things that I just said that that Jesus is doing happen in Peter's hometown. Okay? So Peter has experienced a lot of Jesus before we get to chapter 5. And so Peter witnessed all of these things. We know he did because in verses 38 and 39 of chapter 4, look at this. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So after his sermon, he goes to Peter's house for lunch. And it says, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. It's like two miracles in one, right? You get a healing and a meal. It's awesome. And so... And so Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, which was Peter's local synagogue. And make no mistake, he would have been there at the synagogue that morning, all right? Um, no, lo- no Jewish person would be absent from the synagogue, on, would, be, would be missing from church, okay? Unless they were a leper or an outcast or something like that. No one's working a couple extra hours at the Walmarts. Okay, no one's at home just reading the paper. The local synagogue doesn't have a soccer game scheduled or anything like that. Okay, everyone's there. And so Jesus leaves the synagogue, goes to Peter's house. And Peter's probably really impressed with this guy. Peter is a local businessman. He has a house that's probably, it's large enough for his mother-in-law to live there. You know, God bless him. Uh, his mother-in-law lives with him. But, um, <clears throat> you know, he, he probably has a large house. He's a successful businessman. And so he goes over to, uh, Jesus goes to Peter's house and does these miracles. But then, in uh, verses 40 and following, now just look there, it says, Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And so all these healings, it says that basically it goes all through the night. These probably happened right outside of Peter's house. Okay? And so everything that Jesus is doing, I mean, what happened outside of Peter's house was like a cross between a tent revival meeting and a circus, okay? I mean, it's just demons screaming out of people, people being healed of diseases, all kinds of excitement. I mean, it was noisy and crazy, but there was an abiding sense that God was doing something through this person, Jesus. And then finally, it says at the end of the chapter, Jesus departs to a desolate place and then eventually moves on because he wanted to preach other places uh, as well. But now our point, again, in looking back at chapter 4, is that by the time we get to chapter 5 and the miraculous catch of fish and what we just saw, Peter has already seen a whole lot of Jesus. He's experienced a lot of Jesus. He's begun to form some distinct 
impressions about this mysterious prophet from the backwoods, you know, backwater podunk town of Nazareth. And, and so our story in chapter 5 is not Peter's first interaction with Jesus. He knew Jesus to be a man of spiritual authority, and that's really key to understanding what happened. So let's go to chapter 5 again. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the lake of Galilee. It's called something different depending on where you're from. Okay, uh, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out for them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, again, we saw what just came before, that Peter has a lot of acquaintance with Jesus. That's probably why he's willing, after a completely unsuccessful, long night's work of fishing, that Peter's willing to let Jesus get into his boat and push out from the land. And, um, and this is, by the way, the most effective way for Jesus to teach. Because remember, people are pressing in on him, wanting to touch him, wanting to get healing. And so Jesus needs to actually get away from the, be- the people to be able to preach. But also, even today, at the Lake of Galilee, or the Lake of Gennesaret, all the inlets to the water, they form kind of a natural amphitheater. Because they go down, and there's banks on the side. And even today, if you get out into a boat a little bit out on the water and you speak, people, you can hear a person speaking as if they're right next to you better than if they were standing on the land. Okay, because the acoustics of the water and everything. And so, so, but Jesus needs to get a little bit separate from the people so that he can actually preach to them. He needs to tell them the significance of everything that he's doing. And Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus preached here, but we don't have to guess, okay? Luke and the other Gospels record a lot of Jesus' preaching. He's probably teaching parables about the kingdom of God, maybe things like the Beatitudes that we see in Luke chapter 6. Um, maybe telling parables about the wise and foolish builders and things like that. But it's not really important for our, our story. But when, when, when um, Jesus had finished his instruction and the crowds finally began to disperse, look at what happens in verses 4 and 5. It says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the net. Now the plot thickens. Okay, Now Jesus is on the move. And he's about to make this, this day not another sermon or a day of healings, but something much more. And he, I want you to get this, okay? He instructs Peter to do something that's clearly a waste of time. Okay, this makes absolutely no sense. This is the kind of thing that Peter you know, knows that someone who knows absolutely nothing about fishing would think was a good idea. You know, well, it's a nice sunny day, Peter. Uh, my sermon's done. You know, let's go, uh, let's go catch a couple fish, right? How does that sound, Peter? Good idea, right? And uh, Peter's thinking, this is so stupid. I mean, okay, Jesus, like you're a good teacher and, uh, you know, you're good at this healing stuff, but you're also a carpenter, all right? And I'm a professional fisherman, okay? This makes no sense. I mean, and just think about it again, okay? Put yourself, you know, into the story and see the scene. Peter and his brother Andrew and his partners James and Don spent the entire night fishing with dragnets, okay? This was back-breaking work, okay? Because you had to lay out these huge nets in a semicircle that encompassed about 100 feet, and, uh, and you drew them in by hand over and over again. And by the time these nets were wet, they weighed about 1,000 pounds, okay? And so they had fished all night. It was really hard work that only strong people could do. I mean, Jesus was asking a man who hadn't slept all night 
He just commandeered his boat, all right? Now he's, now he's spent his all night examining empty nets. Okay, he's probably frustrated. Imagine working all night and then not getting paid for it, right? I mean, this is exactly what's going on. And then he says, hey, Peter, beat your boat, lay up your heavy wet nets, about 1,000 pounds worth, and row it in the deep water, and let's go for a catch, okay? And all at midday, by the way. At midday, the fish, they swim down to the bottom because of the sun, and these nets were visible, okay, during the day, right? So the fish would see them and be like, uh, dumb idea, and swim away, right? So you didn't fish with nets like this during the day. So... I mean, what right did Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, what right did he have to ask a, a Galilean fisherman who had spent the whole night, you know, to, to do his bidding? Why would, it, why would he do that? But what's interesting is Peter's still respectful, okay? He calls him master because, again, he's seen Jesus and his authority and things like that. And, you know, there's no sarcasm font in the Greek language, but I can't help but reading a little sarcasm into this. You know, he, he, he pushes back a little bit. He goes, well, Jesus, you know, we kind of fished all night and didn't catch anything, but because you say so, you know, because you say so, we'll go out, right? And so, but he does do what Jesus says. I mean, I think that's really interesting. He doesn't say, you know, that, no, okay, right? just go somewhere else. He doesn't do that. Simon Peter, he does know something of Jesus' character and demeanor, and he's seen his authority, so he rightly calls him master and teacher and obeys Jesus' command. I think that's it's interesting. He obeys Jesus' command even when it doesn't make sense to him, and I think that is a little message for us too. But we should be really glad that he did. Look at, look at verses 6 and 7. And when they had done that, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish so that their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, uh, and, they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is undeniably a miracle. I mean, at the absolute worst time to fish, they catch the greatest haul of fish they had ever seen or heard of. I mean, just, again, get the picture in your mind. They fill two boats. These boats, okay, when I get a picture in my mind of these boats, I think like small boats, you know. But these boats were seven and a half feet wide and about 27 feet long, okay. Now, those boats were so full that they were sinking. This was several tons of fish, okay. This is like a lot of fish. And... That this was more than they ever than that ever could have happened in the best of times. I mean, the nets were breaking. They were, there were so many fish. And so it would have been obvious to all that more than mere human power is at work here. This was a miracle. And you know what? This would have been a great story right here. If the story ended right at this point, you could say, I mean, it could be any, like any other miraculous story from chapter 4. It shows us Jesus' power and authority, and it could wrap up. And they all went home and lived happily ever after, right? And at first glance, the miracle does seem to be the highlight of the story. It does seem to be the point of the story. You know, Simon and company had been unsuccessful fishing all night. And under God's providence, uh, God provided for them and shown them who Jesus was. The end. That's a great story. But if we keep reading, this isn't actually the main point of the story. This, this isn't even the high point of the account, right? Just when we think, wow, that's amazing, there's this sudden uptick in the plot, and the story takes a turn we never would have imagined. Look again at verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. But when Simon Peter saw it, 
he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, instead, I mean, again, imagine the scene. Imagine you're standing on the shore. You see the commotion happening. They're trying to drag the nets. They're filling up both the boats. And instead of Peter going, we're rich. Oh, my God, we're rich. You know, I mean, instead of doing that, okay, and, and instead of him, you know, tr- go, Jesus, this is awesome, okay, I didn't know you could do this, let's become business partners, all right? Two times a week, not just once a week, you come down, do this thing with a miracle, and we'll split the profits, you know, 60-40. Okay, 50-50. Okay, 40-60, right? He doesn't do that. I mean, that's what you think might happen because Peter's a businessman, right? I mean, this should be the best experience and day of Peter's life. But instead, you're watching from the shore and you see Peter fall down broken at Jesus' feet and basically weeping and saying, get away from me. Get away from me because I'm a sinful man. What in the world is going on? This is weird. This is a weird reaction, okay? You think that maybe a guy like Peter had come, like, unglued or something. Like, Peter, chill out, you know? But let me suggest to you that this is the exact reaction that anybody has in the Bible when they come into the presence of God. Every single time. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah is a prophet. And it says that in the, key, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And it says that Isaiah came into the temple, into the presence of God, and it said that he fell down at his face. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Isaiah had the same exact reaction in the presence of God. Or if you're reading the book of Job, you know, Job, he, he's complaining through the book of Job eventually, you know, and he complains and he says, I want to see God. I want to argue my case before God. I want to talk to God. And God shows up and Job is like knocked out, you know, in the first round, two seconds, you know, on the carpet. And he's, he covers his mouth and says, you know, I'm nothing. You know, I, I'm nobody. All I can do is cover my mouth and just shut up. In the presence of God. Every time a sinful creature comes into the presence of God, it's it's a reaction of abject fear and horror at their sinfulness in the presence of God. That's exactly what Peter is experiencing in this boat in the middle of a lake at the feet of Jesus. He realized this is the moment when when it finally dawns on Peter, Peter who this Jesus really is. This is the holy God. This is God himself. He's not just a a fisherman or a carpenter or a healer or a preacher or a prophet. He's in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And just like Job, when he sees God, all he can do is shut his mouth. And just like Isaiah the prophet, when he saw God as holy, 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 he's completely broken. Peter falls down on his knees, confesses his unworthiness and brokenness before Jesus. See, all throughout Scripture, whenever broken, sinful creatures encounter their perfect, majestic, and holy creator, there's no greater sense than fear. And you know, whenever whenever through divine revelation, God chooses to pull back the veil and show himself 
and show his presence to us, we as humans will always be struck with awe and a sense of our own spiritual nakedness and brokenness and sinfulness. You know, nakedness is a really good metaphor because what was the experience of Adam and Eve when they first real when they first sinned? Right? What was their experience? They, it said that they they all of a sudden they realized they were naked and they ran and hid, right? Have you guys ever had that dream? I've had that dream where you know, you're maybe you're somewhere, you're at your high school or your college, you're in a public place, and you're t- and you look down in the dream, okay, and you realize you're totally naked, right? There's like nothing more horrifying than being totally naked, like in front of other people, right? Okay, being like, you know, you're in a large crowd and you realize it and you go, ah, you know, you like run, you know, all you can do is run away. It's like it's it's horrifying, right? You know, and why is that? I mean, it's just, of course, it's obvious. Like, why is that? Well. The reason is because the, the, the picture of nakedness is being totally exposed, right? Being completely laid bare, nothing to hide, you know, no spanks, right? No cool clothing. Like you can't hide anything in your nakedness. And that's why Scripture uses that picture of nakedness before God whenever, because we're open and laid bare, right? We can't hide anything. All the worst sins that you've ever done, all the things that you hide from even your spouse or your, even your closest friends, the things you wish nobody could ever possibly know about, God knows. And whenever that's exposed, it's, it's just horror and shock and fear. That's the immediate sense that Adam and Eve felt, and that's exactly what Peter is feeling out in the lake of Galilee. And, and that's, that's seeing... God in his holiness and perfection and seeing us in our sinfulness. It's exactly what Peter was experiencing there in the boat at the feet of Jesus out in the Sea of Galilee. And we know it can be explained as fear and shame because look at verse 10 again. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. It says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus' words are probably the most amazing part of the story. Jesus doesn't say, Yeah, that's right, Peter, you are a loser. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Come, get up, man, it's just fish. <laughs> Come on, big, you know, chill. He doesn't say, don't be a wimp, I need manly men as followers, right? Read Wild by Heart, why don't you, you know? All right. And notice this difference. Jesus doesn't, say, Jesus doesn't say this either. He says, get up, don't bow at my feet. I- I'm merely God's messenger, right? No, he doesn't. He accepts this obeisance and worship from Jesus. What Jesus says are... These three sweet words of grace and peace. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Isn't that amazing? And then, of course, with the profound and clever words, it's from now on, you'll be catching men. So this, this is a really wonderful story. It's an amazing story. But what, is it, what does it mean? I mean, what exactly is going on? And again, on one level, this is a story about a miraculous catch of fish. It's about Peter and James and John and Andrew whenever they're called to be full-time followers of Jesus. Because at the end, verse 11, it says they dropped everything and followed him. But in another sense, I want us to see that this is, this is nothing less than Peter's conversion. The moment where we might say he's born again. Okay, 
And there's something really important that inclines us to see that in this story. And um, this isn't just Peter's calling to ministry, but it's conversion. This is the moment for Peter when it finally clicks who Jesus is. And this is, this is maybe the most important part of the account. It's the moment where, in verse 5, okay, he's calling Jesus master. He's calling him master. He's calling him teacher. But then in verse 8, after the miraculous catch of fish, after he falls at Jesus' feet, he goes from calling him master to calling him Lord. Okay, he calls him Lord. And he uses the Greek word kurios. Okay, it's what I call a kurios click. Okay, it just clicks for him. And this word kurios is the same word that's used in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, the true God of Israel. Okay, this isn't just a term of respect. Master and teacher and things like that are terms of respect. But here, he finally gets it. He goes from calling him master to calling him Lord. So, and, and it's, not another, it's not another nicety. It's not like calling him sir. But, but Luke, you know, who's writing this account, is showing us that this is the Old Testament Lord of Israel. And the context of the story and the rest of what happens confirms everything that I'm saying. And it's no accident that this story so closely parallels Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah's calling to ministry. Because remember, Isaiah comes into the temple. He falls down and says, Woe to me, I am ruined. And then the angel grabs, you know, because he's a man of unclean lips, the angel grabs the, the charcoal from underneath the fire and comes and cleanses his lips. And then what happens with Isaiah? He commissions him to go and preach, right? He commissions him on, you know, the mission of preaching the good news. That's exactly what happens to Peter. He's broken in the presence of the Lord Most High. He's forgiven, and then he's commissioned to do the same exact thing. It's, it's the same God whom Isaiah saw that Peter sees here in this boat. You see, what happens between verse 5 and verse 8 is really significant. It's the click of the light bulb. It's the opening of the eyes for the first time. It's a transition from seeing Jesus as an authoritative prophet to perceiving him as the Holy One of God. It, the click in verse 8 is a transformation from not really seeing to seeing or from seeing and understanding a little bit to, to, to finally the truth breaks forth. It's that moment that we spoke of at the beginning where the penny drops where finally it comes through who Jesus is. And that's exactly what happened to Peter in that moment. And I want us to notice something really important, okay? When Peter has this moment of realization that he's a broken, sinful man, and that he's dealing with someone holy and majestic, and that fear sinks in, and he realizes his, his nakedness before God, he could have reacted in one of two ways. And these are the options we always have whenever we're busted. Whenever we're called out, whenever we're confronted with our sinfulness and that humiliation that it brings, one option is to go into denial, right? Like Adam and Eve did, right? They hid and they said, oh, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me and I ate. And the woman says, well, the serpent, she deceived me. And I don't, I don't, you know, and they, and they start blaming other people and they get defensive. And, and Peter could have done that. He could have gotten defensive. He could have reacted and, and blame shifted. And, and he could have reacted that way. He could have blamed others. He could have said, Jesus, well, if you would have you know, done this miracle before, or why don't you just tell me who you were, Jesus? You know, he doesn't do that, right? And, but the other possible reaction, when we're ashamed, which is the much harder thing to do, is what Peter does here. It's simple and deep humility. It's confession of our brokenness, 
and complete honesty about our sin and our need. I mean, Peter doesn't try to make excuses. Peter doesn't try to, to say, you know, Jesus, if you would have just told me, like, you didn't have to go through this dramatic miracle thing, you know, if you would have just been clearer about who you were, Peter doesn't do any of that, okay? Peter's response is no holds barred brokenness and humility, and like Job, he has nothing else to say. And the most amazing thing about our story is how Jesus responds. I mean, have you considered this? God's response, Jesus' response to Peter's reaction is wholehearted, smiling grace. That's amazing. He doesn't say, okay, Peter, stay down there for a while, grovel for a little bit. You know, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In the midst of a scene of holiness and majesty and miracle come these three perfect words of gentle kindness. Do not fear. This is an amazing picture of glory and grace together. And so, this story is amazing. It's a story about the changing of a whole person. It's, it's a total transformation of Peter. This is a picture of salvation itself, modeled in the life of a normal, nothing fancy fisherman. Simon Peter of Capernaum. Okay, so what? So what? What does it mean for us today? And as we, as we come to a conclusion here... How would God want us to respond to this story today? And that's always the right, act, the right question to ask when you come to the scriptures. And the first thing is I want, you to, I want to urge you towards your own moment of understanding by reflecting on who God shows himself to be in this story. Okay? In this short little account, we get, an, we get a picture of Jesus' power combined with his humility. It's his glory combined with his grace. And there could be nothing more powerful than this. And if you accept it and see it this morning, then you, then you can have the same moment that Peter did. Okay? It's glory and grace together. Let me give you an illustration of what this means. Okay? I'm going to try to like get music people and sports people with the same illustration. Okay? Let's see if it works. All right? All right. Imagine for a minute the the perfect musician. Okay? Or the perfect athlete. You pick the sport. All right? Football, soccer, Quidditch, whatever. All right? And so, so imagine the perfect musician and the perfect athlete, okay? And imagine how perfect that person will be if they were both incredible whenever they were on the stage or on the field and they were just amazing. Like you were in total awe. Like I can't believe this person is so talented, right? They're like, I mean, they're just way beyond anything you can, you can even imagine, okay? Just imagine that. They perform out, I mean, just in a way that, that leaves you in awe. Okay? They're just so awesome and way above your abilities that you're in awe of them. Now, imagine if you had the opportunity to meet him. And at the same time, they were completely humble. They were like more interested in you than you, than you could, could even imagine. They were completely humble. They're interested in you. They cared about what you cared about. They were really gentle and kind. Okay? You see, there's nothing worse than admiring someone, and then you get to meet them, and they're like a total jerk. Right? Has, there's nothing worse than that. Has that ever happened for anyone? You admire someone and then you meet them and they're just like blow you off. Hey, whatever. You know, and like they're rude or you find out, you know, they have some secret life and it comes out in the papers that they're like really a horrible person. Okay? That's about as bad as it can get, right? It's so disillusioning and horrible whenever that happens. But imagine a perfect person on the field or on the stage and then in real life they don't disappoint. 
In fact, you're kind of the opposite of what you might have, like, I can't believe you're such a, like, a normal guy, and you're so nice, you know? And, um, or, or maybe imagine the perfect CEO or the perfect boss, right? I'm sure you all have the perfect boss, right? You know, that they're just amazing at their job. They're, they're, so, they're so skilled, and they have such vision, and they have all these abilities, but then you meet them, and they're, they're gracious, and they're kind, and they're, and they're not seeking their own. Now, now imagine the perfect God. Okay, imagine with me the perfect God. A God you could stand in awe of. Never be bored with. Always be amazed by new and new. And, and you find out that they'll never disappoint because he cares for you. And he listens to you and is gentle. I mean, can you imagine a God like that? Is there anything in any of your hearts today that could be better than that pairing of glory and grace? The one who commands the fish in an instant or who speaks in planets and lobsters and galaxies and these things come into being. This amazing God who commands fish to go into nets with joy on his face but then turns to Peter in his brokenness and says, Do not fear, my brother. From now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. Can you imagine a better God than that? You can't even make one up. You couldn't make up a better God than that. And that is exactly the God that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This glory and grace together. And if that can grip your hearts, when it clicks for you and you finally see your brokenness, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid because it's this gracious, gentle God. You don't have to be afraid. You can be open about your sin. You can be open about your brokenness because he says to you even today, don't be afraid. And you know what? You, you'll never be bored with this God. You never say, you know, I'm kind of bored with God. You know, this is, you know, this grace and glory stuff. No, if, you, if that's the way you think about God, then you don't understand. You haven't really seen him for who he really is. This is the kind of God who can do these kinds of miracles and can create universes and whole worlds but he says to a humble sinner, don't be afraid. But also, what can we learn? So we learned about God, but what can, what can we learn about ourselves? What can we learn about ourselves? See, in this moment of being laid bare in his brokenness and sinfulness, Peter, Peter did face a choice. He could either make excuses for himself and respond with a hard heart to this embarrassment, or he could admit his wrong, cast himself in humility and honesty at the knees of Jesus. And see, it's absolutely crucial to see the direct connection between Peter's willingness to acknowledge his sin and weakness and his experience of grace. You see, everyone wants grace, okay? There's nobody who says, you know what, I just want judgment and wrath, please. You know, like... Everyone wants grace, right? Everyone wants to be treated with grace and kindness and mercy. Everyone wants a second and third and a hundredth chance, you know? But everyone wants God's grace, but the proud will never receive it. Okay? God's grace is available to every man and woman, little boy and little girl on the planet, including every one of you. But only those who are willing to fall down and say that they need grace will ever experience it. See, grace is something that everybody wants, but very few are willing to truly see themselves and to be humbled in the presence of Jesus. Okay? We want grace, 
but we don't want to deal with the reality of our guilt. So that's what you have to do today. Peter was willing to admit his sin and brokenness before God. And Peter heard Jesus speak words of grace because he was willing to speak words of repentance. And that's what you have to be willing to do. That's what you have to do, is you have to repent of your sin. You have to admit it before the holy God. Peter was invited to walk with Jesus, but first he had to fall down at his feet. And see, this isn't something that just happens at the moment of salvation. I mean, you need to have that moment where you, for the first time you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, you have to admit your sin. You have to see your sin in light of God's word and God's holiness. And and you have to admit it and and be forgiven, right? But this is something that keeps happening, right? Martin Luther said the entire life of the Christian is one of repentance, right? And this this is a daily, hourly thing for us. And you and I are constantly facing those moments where we stand on the edge of seeing ourselves or who we we truly are, and and we can either admit our sin or we can turn away. We can either turn away from Jesus or we can fall down at his feet. Let me encourage you to do just this. You see, this message and this story applies equally to a non-believer and a believer. Maybe you're like Peter in this account. You've experienced a lot of Jesus. Like, I mean, remember... Peter had seen Jesus perform miracles, cast out demons, do amazing things, but he didn't really get it. He missed it, right? And maybe that's you today. You've been coming to church for a long time. Maybe maybe, maybe some of you people in here, maybe especially young people, maybe some of you have a drug problem. You know what I mean by a drug problem? You've been drugged to church your whole life, right? Maybe by your parents or by your spouse, right? You're getting drugged to church and, you know, you're... you're memorizing verses or you're trying to pray you're trying to be a better person but you haven't really seen jesus for who he is and you haven't been broken like peter was let me urge you to see god for who he is this majestic and holy creator but this glorious and merciful savior and turn to him stop running away from him and run towards him that could be you even as it was for for peter And let me assure you, Jesus never rejects people who acknowledge their weakness and sinfulness. His grace actually transforms them and joins them to his saving mission, just like it did Peter. But even if you are already a follower of Christ, the message is the same. The message is exactly the same. It's not a different message. Today may be the day, by the Spirit of God, for you to be open to new levels of understanding, to see again in some area of your life, maybe your marriage... Or maybe you have some secret addiction. Maybe there's something that you're struggling with and you're just not, you're not willing to let it go. And maybe you've only been seeing it from a human perspective, but God is trying to break in and show you himself. Maybe you need to renew your sensitivity to what God is saying to you, either seeing your own brokenness more clearly or maybe seeing his grace more clearly. And here's the best news of all. God's grace and kindness in Jesus Christ is so vast that even when you don't respond to God's work correctly, even when you blow it and you choose to stubbornly stubbornly remain in your blind ways, even then, God is still working and wooing and calling you back and receiving him, relieving, uh, revealing himself to you and calling you back graciously to himself. And maybe that's where you are today. You're a Christian. Okay? You, you've turned to God before, but you're in rebellion and you're at arm's length from God. 
He's calling you back. And one reason we know that for sure is what happens in John 21. Turn there as we close together. Look at John chapter 21. This is absolutely amazing. The reason, one of the reasons we know how God continually treats us like this and is constantly calling us back is what happens here in John 21. Now, do you remember, okay, Peter, after this happened, and later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is crucified, and Peter absolutely blows it, right? He denies Jesus three times, okay? He even curses, calls down a curse upon himself and denies Jesus three times after Jesus said, remember Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Peter has absolutely blown it. He's ruined his testimony. I mean, he's done about the worst thing you could do. Jesus is on trial, being beaten and crucified, and Peter's saying, I don't know this guy. I don't know this Jesus person, and he denies him. And what does he do? In his depression and in his sadness, he goes back to fishing, right? And in John 21, it says, you know, uh, just let's read it. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of his other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing sounds like a really familiar scenario doesn't it they fish all night they catch nothing and just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore yet the disciples didn't know that it was jesus and jesus said to them children do you have any fish they answered him no he said to them well cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you'll and you'll find some again (laughs) they fished all night they caught nothing and then Jesus asked them to do something that is really makes no sense, right? I mean, okay, just throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Brilliant idea, genius, right? But look what happens. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. (laughs) This is so amazing, and you know what happens next. You know, Peter is so eager to see Jesus. He jumps and he swims ashore, and then his threefold denial, he had denied Jesus three times. Peter restores him three times, right? And look at this amazing thing. Jesus uses the exact same miracle to restore Peter that he did to call him in the first place. I mean, isn't that just like Jesus? To be that gracious and that awesome? (laughs) I mean, after he completely blew it, Jesus uses the exact same miracle to graciously call him back. Could there be a more beautiful and rich picture of God's knowledge of us and his overabundant grace towards us? I mean, is there anything more amazing than that? And maybe that's where you are today. And Jesus is extending his gracious hand and calling you back to your first love, to the same heart that you had on the first day that you came to see him and fall at his feet. And you know what Jesus says to you? says don't be afraid don't be afraid just just come to me and he will graciously forgive you 
And you know, I said earlier that, you know, Peter is called the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, and he blows it over and over again, and he makes so many mistakes, and he does so many stupid things, and but God always is graciously calling him back. And he's doing the same thing to you today. So don't be afraid. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this amazing account in the life of Peter that teaches us so much about you and teaches us so much about ourselves. And I pray that if there was anyone in here who doesn't know you, that they would see you for who you are in your grace and glory and they would that they would stop running away from you and that they would run towards you. And I pray if there's anyone in here today who, who knows you already but has been running away, has been denying their sin, who has blown it completely, I pray that they would see that your grace extends even now. They would come to you again and again and again, just like Peter. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.